Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh. I'm here with Matt Matern. Matt, how are you? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks for having me on your show. Glad to have you here. Thank you for being on your show. So uh, regular readers of my blog have seen the link and know that I was on your podcast. And we had a great conversation. And also, I couldn't help but if one looks up your name online, they'll, they'll see Matern for President 2020. And so you ran on a conservative um, platform. I'm going to read from you. The top thing on your page on the environment says, you can't be a conservative if you don't believe in conservation and take seriously our responsibility to steward the environment for future generations of Americans. Then right below that is a picture of Teddy Roosevelt and a quote from him. Although you don't have the quote that I love of his the most, which is, uh, which actually isn't his quote. He put it in his autobiography. He's quoting someone else, but it's do what you can with what you've got where you are, which has been a big thing motivating me not to wait for others to act and so forth. And it really kills me. Regular listeners to this podcast and people who talk to me know that I cannot stand the partisanship that's arisen. And I don't agree with a lot of people who say, oh, the other guy started it when I think it takes two to tango in this. So when I find someone who is breaking the mold, that's someone interesting to me. And uh, and that's you. So I'd, I'd love to talk more about I'm not sure if that's the best place to start. Maybe we could start with a bit of background of you. You're a lawyer. How did you come to um, stewardship, the environment? How did you come to politics? Is this is this long-time stuff for you? Is it new for you? I think I've, uh, I've always been interested in politics and public policy, and that was one of the reasons why I chose the path to being a lawyer was that I felt like if one is going to be engaged in that arena, one should have some background in law. It seems that was kind of a traditional path to to politics or public policy. So that was one of the reasons why I chose a legal career. And um, and then as uh, a Republican at the time, really kind of drawn towards Reagan's stance against totalitarianism in the former Soviet Union in particular, thought was the pressing issue of the time in the 80s. So even though I had come from a democratic family, my both my parents were um, you know, big democrats uh at the time, I kind of was drawn towards that and uh unfortunately at the time uh Reagan wasn't much of a, an environmentalist, but the the Republican Party had plenty of environmentalists in it, uh, such as Pete McCluskey, who was a congressman out here in California, who authored the Endangered Species Act. And uh, George H.W. Bush had run to be the environmental president in 1988. So I thought there was still some hope for the Republican Party on those issues. And even though I wasn't Wholly in line with everything that they were about, um, you know, I, I kind of tended in that direction. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, the uh, the Republican Party just started to go more and more towards uh, the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, you know, Dick Cheney was a big part of that in, in pushing George W. Bush away from his campaign promises, which were to cap uh a carbon a co2 emissions but uh he's <laughs> i had on my show christy todd whitman who his, was his epa chief and uh, she told the story of how she went to 
to Italy to a, a G8 uh, summit of uh, environmental ministers and said, hey, we're planning on uh, capping our carbon emissions and uh, CO2 emissions and came back and Cheney and others were kind of uh, palace intrigued, were like ready to to put the knife in her for that and wanted her to disavow those statements, which he had run on. So that was kind of uh, the, I think, a real pivot point in the Republican Party as far as turning away from principles that would have been really helpful for our environment and then kind of went more and more in the bag for fossil fuels. I'm hearing on your part, and tell me if I'm mishearing, that there's an enthusiasm in the 80s that you – well, I'm curious, like, your views on the environment back then, it sounded upbeat and uh, maybe there were problems, but they could be solved. And then turning to a dismay or disappointment or an exasperation maybe later. And I wonder if we could explore the first part first because if – actually, when you talk about Reagan, I do think of Reagan having led protests in California – well before his presidency, of opposing highways, um, wanting to protect Lake Tahoe. And he changed. I mean, Goldwater and um, uh, what's his name? A guy who ran for mayor of New York City. Uh, his name escapes me for a second. But, uh, oh, uh, Lindsay or? Uh, or no? He, he, no, um, he did a talk show. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. And uh, I mean, there was a lot of conservative movement toward conservation. So how did you feel back then before thing before Cheney before things switched were you upbeat were you positive I guess I, I guess I was looking at it through the lens of this was more localized in the 80s uh, I remember the Wall Street Journal did a, a great expose of, on the oil drilling industry in Louisiana and, and the devastation that it wrought through the the wetlands there and and that was during like the mid to late 80s and um, and so it it just I remember talking to the I was going to law school in at Loyal and in New Orleans at the time talking to the guys in class with me who were oil guys and saying hey look at this this, this is horrible and uh, so I, I was an environmentalist then but I guess maybe a small e because I didn't I didn't think of the cataclysmic effects I thought of it more as localized problems. And then uh, as it became clearer and clearer that these were more serious planet systemic problems that uh, could cause, you know, uh, kind of the death of our civilization at some point in time, if we don't take it more seriously, um, then I became more and more uh, serious about the environment. And did you feel, was it concern? Was it um enthusiasm for action i think it was at the time i i recall just kind of being moderately concerned of course at the time i had uh three young kids and you know running my law firm and you know there was a lot to juggle so it wasn't as if i was in a point in my life where i felt i could do a whole lot and then as that changed and you know, kids got older, I had more autonomy and, 
my business was running more effectively. Um, you know, I had more bandwidth to, or at least I felt like I had more bandwidth to actually engage on these issues. And now I have to digress or go back a second. It was William F. Buckley who, uh, in running for, for mayor of New York City, was proposing making huge bike paths throughout the city. And I found this quote. He said, speaking about pollution, he said, here is a legitimate concern of government, a classic example of the kind of thing that government should do, which is to regulate pollution. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant quote. And uh, unfortunately, I think everybody in government has lost their way on that, or not everybody, but lots of uh, governmental types have forgotten to price in the cost of pollution. We've basically taken it as a given that pollution has uh, very little cost um, in terms of, you know, extraction of oil. We don't look, our economic models look at the economic value of of getting the oil out of the ground and selling it versus what's the cost to our community, our environment for pulling it out of the ground, which generally is just not part of the equation when looking at business. Yeah, a tree is worth more cut down than standing up these days. I mean, to the GDP. Right. So, that's, so let's go ahead. Uh, yeah, let's bring bring it up to the present day. How do you feel now? And what I mean, running for president is not a uh, something one does lightly. I mean, anyone can do it, but you put your name out there, you're it affects your reputation. Uh, what what led to that? How did you? Uh, can you fill in the gaps? Sure. I mean, I, I guess I was I had moved uh, to Venice, California, and I was thinking, well, I need to change my registration voter registration card just to update so I can vote out here. And uh, and I thought, well, should I change it to independent or Democrat or should I keep it as Republican? And uh, a friend of mine had who was a Democrat had just said to me, he was a New Yorker, said, you know, it's too bad they don't have kind of the the liberal Republicans like they had of my youth, a few of which you were kind of hearkening back to on the East Coast. And and I thought to myself, yeah, it maybe I'm just seeding ground to uh, let the Trumpists take over of the Republican Party. Uh, to maybe there's something I could do to stand the stand my ground and and uh, kind of push back on this narrative that Republicans are anti-environment, and of course Trump just kind of made my blood boil in terms of just about everything about him, but in particular the environment and his denial of climate change and his anti-intellectualism and his inability to kind of um, really take it seriously as a problem. Um, so I felt like he was in some respects an existential threat to the environment as well as to democracy. So, uh, I should stand up against him and I, I couldn't kind of, I wrestled with it and thought if I do nothing, can I, how will I look back at myself having just sat on the sidelines and did, done nothing. If even if there's a 1000th percent chance that I could have an effect, it's, it's worth jumping in there and doing something. How did you, there are a bunch of people who are described themselves as never Trumpers. 
who then seem to just now go to Mar-a-Lago and take orders. Uh, Lindsey Graham comes to mind, a couple others. I mean, it could have been that as Take a Stand could have been a risk considering his base. Were you worried about that? I mean, it could have been doing nothing might have been much safer. I'm not sure how it looked to you from, from uh, back then. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, I, I wrestled with it literally, uh, you know, waking up in the middle of the night like, oh, my God, are you crazy? You've got to stop this. This is insanity. Uh, don't do it. And then uh, I've been kind of a yogi for the last 15 years or so and do it daily. And I thought this fear that I am facing here is probably the fear that stops me in life on on everything. This is this is it. So here's a here's an opportunity to face this fear and kind of walk through it. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen? But this is an opportunity to really grow. And and it was, I mean, it was super challenging to kind of face those fears and, and walk through it. You talked about the contact of yours who described, who said, what happened to the liberal Republicans of, I forget if it's liberal Republicans or liberal, liberal conservatives of another time. And how do you distinguish, because I don't, I, I don't know if, if people believe me or not. I just do not see sustainability as a partisan issue. I mean, I see that there's a, it's a tribal issue, but I don't see it as um, – I mean, a, a lot of people, I think, now see it as a liberal issue. But Well, that's – yeah, it's fascinating. I think there's a, a congressman uh, who's uh, – and I'm tr- I don't know if it's Massey. Uh, he kind of lives in, in rural uh, – I can't remember if it's Kentucky uh, – and he's kind of a back to nature guy and very kind of sustainable lifestyle. Um, and so there are fringes of the Republican Party, which do, do have some of that. Um, unfortunately, from a like the high end decision making body uh, are are much more tied to the oil industry and things of that nature. So they they're tending towards things that are anti-environmental and anti-sustainable. How did that happen? Do you, what do you think? I mean, well, you can look back at uh, one of the things that that happened. There was a, a great book called The End of Loyalty that um, talked about after World War Two or actually during World War Two, a number of the big corporate executives got together and said, we're going to have 15 million soldiers coming back from overseas at some point in time, and we better have good jobs for them or else there's going to be a revolution here. And so they decided to start paying people more and giving them benefits. And uh, that was that worked out really well. And at the time, um, corporate CEOs were making 40 times the average worker. That skyrocketed to 400 times. And you kind of look back at, at what the shift was in corporate America, and one of them was kind of the Milton Friedman um, you know, thesis that the corporations really had no duty other than to the shareholders and to maximize shareholder value. And I think that disconnected corporate America from community. And, and uh, if 
corporations are people, then they're part of a community too. And they have some community obligations. And as more and more corporate America became less tethered to community and more just about bottom line profits and kind of raping their corporation to maximize their salaries and, um, you know, then you, you got to disconnect as far as taking care of the community. And do you think that the, I mean, when I, when I grew up, conservatives talked about family values, small town America. I, and I see, I don't, I don't see the connection between small town America and big core. Uh, I mean, how do I put it? This trend toward what you're talking about, I think of of the per, corporate personhood, and also what fossil fuels have enabled in terms of flying and trucking. And I don't know; it seems to have hollowed out small town America. I, I don't want to say it's one thing. I mean, there's lots of things that happened, but it seems to be undermining community, not building it. Right. Well, I, uh, a friend of mine had said this to me that kind of conservatism is holding on to the status quo and and uh, the far end of, you know, uh, progressivism is to kind of tear it all down as far as chaos. They're they're They don't like the way the status quo is. And I I believe that politicians have been very good at weaponizing the fear of tearing down the status quo. And um, and unfortunately, uh, the culture wars have have gotten in the way of us listening to each other and taking this fear based thinking down a notch so that we can just kind of focus on solving problems and uh, that that's just not happening. Um, so, yeah, the systemic decline of of small towns is is a fascinating issue and it's also heartbreaking to see how people in small towns have been kind of uh forgotten by our government and i think that's why they've tended towards feeling like hey anybody who's going to listen to us even if that's trump even though we believe that he's a huckster or a criminal or worse um you know, at least he might be fighting for us. Yeah, people like to feel to feel listened to and understood, and there's not a lot of that in big politics. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're talking about the the issues that brought you uh, the the situation that that got you active. Did you have a sense of what you would do differently, or what you would um, where you'd go from being? I, it, did you expect to become president, or I, I don't want to. No, I, I didn't. I, I, I felt like the probably a best case scenario for me was to be to energize the, the people who were the never Trumpers or people who felt um, they they were conservatives, but felt uh, the environment was a big issue or just felt that Trump was a, a bridge too far and that they would swing over and vote for Biden uh, because um, you know, he is a better, you know, a better candidate, better president. He would be a better president, is a better, better president than Trump. Um, so that was kind of my hope going into it is to energize people who felt like me that that Trump was absolutely the wrong person for the job. 
And, uh, you know, I, I'm heartened by the fact that, like, in New Hampshire, Trump lost, but there was a Republican governor, Chris Sununu, who was a little more environmentally uh, conscious. Uh, he won. So you could see that that people did split their tickets. And I think that was kind of the demographic that I was speaking to as people who um, were somewhat conservative, but uh, were not willing to go vote for Trump. It sounds like the issues for you, the, the environment was one issue, and it sounds like character and integrity was another, that you preferred Biden over over Trump. Yeah, definitely a character was a, a, a part of it. A big part of it is that Trump had no respect really for democratic or democracy. Uh, it was all about, and, and January 6th is a great, you know, a terrible example of it, but it's it just shows anything. He was willing to do anything to kind of stay in power. And obviously that's, that's horrifying um, since we've... Uh, been able to sustain a democracy for 200 uh, going on 250 years uh, for him to pull it all down it just because he's he's willing to win it, it, willing to do anything to stay in power is is horrifying so anyway that's <laughs> I could I, I didn't see that coming exactly but I could see his disrespect for any kind of legal tradition he he didn't care about the law. Then there must have been issues. There, there must be plenty of issues that you disagree with Biden. I mean, there are the wedge issues of, of things like gun control or abortion, uh, size of government. I, was that is it like holding your nose and and you know? I don't think. I guess I I think that those issues are important, and I may not agree with uh, him on everything. I'm I'm certainly not a big gun person. Uh, I've never actually owned a gun, shot a gun. So, uh, you know, gun gun rights are, are not up at the top of my agenda. Um, so I, I think some reason, you know, reasonable restrictions on gun use are, are pretty, pretty much called for, as we can see with these mass shootings going on practically every day. So that that isn't a differentiating issue. I think there's something that could be the Republicans could add to the mix of the environmental conversation, uh, which Biden is kind of missing out of having a partner to negotiate and push back a little bit to come up with better solutions. I, I think that, say, the IRA was probably, you know, a pretty a good step, but could it have been better if the Republicans had actually engaged on those issues and said, hey, this piece of it could be done better. Uh, let's work on this to make it even more effective. But when you kind of cede the entire ground to the opposition and say, we're, we're not going to negotiate, we don't believe anything of what you're doing, um, leads to less suboptimal solutions. Yeah, I definitely am mixed on the IRA myself. Uh, what might have you, had you been there, had they asked you, what might have you proposed different, if you don't mind sharing? I mean, I think that, I think the uh, the big thing that we could or should do is just having a pri pricing CO2, methane, and other 
kind of emissions that are particularly detrimental and and putting some kind of price on them so that um, that will adjust everybody's behavior once we put a price on them. And rather than kind of trying to do it piecemeal, I think that's that's the problem or that is one of the problems. How about all these subsidies? And, and I feel like the government is putting a lot of money into a lot of things that aren't necessarily – they might lower carbon emissions or greenhouse emissions and they might wreck other things of comparable amounts. I think it's also – it feels like it's there's a lot of um, – I guess if if I were Republican, I would say there's a lot of socialism in there. I wouldn't put it that way myself, but big government um, control. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think there are challenges anytime the government or anybody else tries to predict the future in terms of determining which, say, hydrogen. They put a bunch of hydrogen hubs around. That could be a very good thing, or it could be a you know it it might not be as successful as everybody would like it to be or or some people would like it to be um it's hard to predict the future and which which of these technologies is really going to be the winner at the end of the day and i i know that you're somebody who would probably prefer us to be uh you know developing less energy and and things of that nature that are going to have have consequences to the environment and and many of the programs in the IRA probably continue or uh, continue the process of us becoming yet a bigger economic behemoth spending you know using more and more energy um, maybe it's produced a little bit more sustainably but as we all know you can't we haven't got to the point where we can produce energy without some uh, externality, some byproducts that are problematic. Yeah, it's funny. I was just going to say, what did you think about me on your podcast talking about uh, cultural change? I mean, I'm a big fan of technology. I, you know, I got a satellite up in space that I helped work on and I got patents. And But a lot of technology is not, there's, how do I put it? There's a lot of technology that was meant to do one thing and it's doing something different. And the unintended side effects are often greater than the intended effects. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, uh, there, there are stories of the leaded gasoline that was developed or the, the um, refrigerant gases that were developed that destroyed the ozone layer, uh, things of that nature. So... I kind of uh, was shaken up a little bit, uh, which is in a good way, by what you had to say on on my podcast in terms of, hey, this is a different way of looking at it. It's really looking foundationally as we live as humans. Can we scale back the way that we're living and consuming, which I'm I'm a, a big fan of the doing away with GNP as our metric, which guides society. Uh, unfortunately, uh, just more and more economic development or producing more goods and measuring that as we're doing better because we produced more is an archaic model. That's a model based upon that resources are essentially infinite. And, you know, that was maybe okay when Adam Smith 
was around a few hundred years ago and cooked up kind of basic economic theory, but I think it no longer serves us. So we should be supporting people uh, to consume less. And so what's a, what's a tax code? What's a, a method of supporting people, encouraging people to use less? Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as to what would you change kind of tax code wise to, to make that happen? Well, when I got to go back one step of, do you know the whole story with Kuznets coming up with the GDP and he, I mean, the guy who came up with it said, this is not like, do not use this for what we're using it for. No, I don't recall that one. Yeah. I look it up. Simon, Simon, I think Kuznets came up with the GDP and it was during the depression, I think. And it was a measure of economic output, but he says, you know, this is not to measure, don't use this to measure the economy in general. And, and it's not for that. Right. And, it's kind of, kind of similar to uh, Powell uh, came out to the Southwestern United States and he was doing an exploration as to whether or not it should be developed. And he said, absolutely, we should not develop it and create dams and stuff like this. It's not the place we should have large human development. Of course, they went ahead and did develop it and then named the, what is it, Lake Powell after him. After him. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, so to the question of what I would do, I, I have to go, I have to be clear about um, my strong preference. No, absolute, it, it, it's got to go through democratic means. So what I would do, like if someone, if someone every, every now and then I'll be on a podcast and someone asks me, you know, if you're a dictator, what would you do? And I would say, first, free and fair elections. And if I don't get elected, I got to, that's, I got to watch from the sidelines. But if I do get elected, then I would have to get popular support for, you know, I have to get a mandate to act and I have to get popular support for things. So I'm not interested in doing anything that doesn't happen through democratic means. And if we could do something through authoritarian means, I would rather go down with democracy because it's going to happen. It, I, I'm sure it would happen faster. I mean, whatever authoritarian did things that I liked, it's great when they're doing things you like, but you can't stop them when they start doing things you don't like. And it seems to happen inevitably. So I have to put that preface in front of things. Um, in terms of a carbon tax, when people say carbon tax, to me, there's a big, it's to me, it's a pollution tax. And because, and, and so carbon is one and, and carbon or greenhouse gases, I have to make clear because a lot of people say, well, how can you call it pollution if it's something that is necessary for life? So I distinguish between greenhouse gases. Let's just talk about carbon dioxide first, that if you if you chop down a tree and burn it, you're taking stuff from inside the biosphere and shuffling it around within the biosphere. If you take something from, if you drill oil or coal or natural gas and bring that out, you're taking something that has been outside the biosphere since long before humans ever existed, something like 10, 100 million years ago. So that's taking something from outside the biosphere and putting it inside the biosphere. That's a different story than moving things around within the biosphere. This is a big reason, for example, why I think carbon offsets are not only don't work, but they're incredibly counterproductive. Because if you take something that wasn't in the, if you take something that's on a hundred million year time frame, time cycle, and you substitute it planting a tree or anything that we do within the biosphere that has something like a hundred year time cycle, 
that's a 1 million time difference in the cycles. So that's just terrible accounting. It's a big accounting issue to me, which I think hopefully a lot of fiscal conservatives are get accounting. If you don't have, if your accounting is poor in a company, if you allocate, if you, if you take spending in that the sales department says and, and, and think that that came from the, uh, uh, the media department from, I don't know, the R&D department, you're going to go bankrupt. And because of our accounting, we have poor accounting. Someone dumps something in the water and, or let's just take on a very small scale. Someone's walking down the street, they finish their candy bar, they drop the litter on the ground. I pay taxes to clean it up. They don't. And that's terrible accounting. Or let's take Cancer Alley in along the Gulf Coast. Someone's some shareholders are getting cheap, or their sharehold their their shares are worth more because no one paid for the cost of having disposed of something, if it can be disposed of safely. If it can't, then they're getting profits off of something that's just inherently causing cancer. Meanwhile, other people are having to pay for cancer treatments, and everybody, it's just terrible allocation, or rather un. An allocation of, of or accounting that is going to cause the equivalent of the company, uh, the country going bankrupt because we're not allocating things effectively. So it's really, to me, more an issue of accounting. And it's really about pollution more than carbon. So when someone says carbon tax, I think it's more of like proper accounting for pollution. So yeah, I do think that that's the better way to frame it. And, and we have to have a kind of a an entire spectrum of accounting for each different piece of the puzzle. And it is certainly challenging to value each piece of the puzzle. And certainly methane probably needs to get more uh, focus on it because it is what 80 times more powerful uh, than CO2. And so if we want to have a short term effect on, on our, on greenhouse gases, we really have to go after that in a big way. Yeah, and also, anytime someone talks about climate only, guaranteed they're going to start coming up with solutions that are going to increase deforestation, increase human rights abuses and uh, cobalt and things like that. And, and so we've got to look at not the – it's not just the things that we can measure, but – a culture that doesn't value well here okay um this is maybe a bit too long stop me if i'm if i'm going on too long but to me there's uh a free market is where i produce something and maybe i do it really well because i got a better technique or maybe i do it enough that i got economies of scales of scale but and then i got maybe i make some chairs and you need some chairs and because i do it well I value your money at a certain price. I value your money more than the chair. You value the chair more than your money. We trade. We both benefit. I like that. That was around, that kind of behavior was around long before Adam Smith. I mean, that goes back thousands of years. People were trading goods and services like that. But what if in making the thing, I hurt someone? Say I used child labor or historically say I used slavery. That's not free trade because someone's involved in that that couldn't consent. That's something different. And I think we as a nation agree that that's a qualitatively different thing. Even if the if someone else 
uh, a, a child has to work in a mine to do it, or a slave is, is coerced to do it, then even if you and I benefit tremendously and they only, if you could quantify this somehow, they somehow suffer, but it's not quite as much. We, don't, we say, no, it's never permissible. There, no child labor is allowed. No uh, slavery is allowed. Those are not free. That's not free trade. Well, what if in making something, I produce some pollution that necessarily hurts people? And that's happening all over the place. I mean, I don't think I have to explain how much people are being hurt. I mean, just one number. Uh, according to The Lancet, a peer-reviewed publication, 9 million people a year die from breathing polluted air. And that's not, not just people living in Cancer Alley. That's people all over the world. You can't help breathe. And 9 million is, that's every year. So, and that's a number that's increasing. Right. I mean, that's just, it, it is shocking. And it's something that uh, most of us don't get our arms around because, of course, that's 90 million people in a decade. Um, if people got their arms around that, I, I think they would be outraged, shocked, uh, and and be asking to have our politicians make some change. But somehow that kind of gets uh, shortchanged in in the media, and and we don't hear very much about that. Because well, I think people feel like if you can't do anything about it, then stop telling me about it. What, if I can't change it, then making me feel guilty doesn't help. Well, I think that we have we have done things that have reduced that. I mean. Uh, Clean Air Act, both one and two. I, I was reading that Clean Air Act number two uh, reduced deaths uh, by 250,000 a year or something like that, which would be 2.5 million a decade. Um, so I think we we have, you know, in Southern California, there was a lot of change made because of the incredible air pollution, incredibly bad air pollution here. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even now, and and uh, people are working on it. It has gotten better, but it still could be a whole lot better than it is. Well, I think that they they got some things, uh, catalytic converters, for example, reduced a lot of types of, of pollution. But some things you can lower until a certain point, but you can't drive a car, you can't drive a diesel truck or ship a container ship or fly an airplane without some minimal amount that there's no possible way you can get below. You, those things pollute. And it seems to me that it's, it's, it's simply not free trade. If you and I, I'm exchange, you and I exchange your good and ser goods and services, but we are harming people who cannot possibly consent to it. I, I don't see how we can call that free trade. It's something different. Right. I think that that goes back to how does one price that pollution um, and I mean, some of it just the government can regulate out of existence, like in California, they're going to stop trucks from being sold that are kind of internal combustion engine uh, and diesel trucks that um, will hopefully make the air better here. But uh, um, would it be? beneficial to to have a price on it but i guess the problem with that is maybe somebody's willing to pay the price and then it it's going to kill people so 
Yeah, so that's why to me there's a qualitative thing here. There's there quantitative things can make a difference. And I, I, I don't want to imply that I don't support them to some degree, but it doesn't address the qualitative issues of some things. Um, we have a 13th Amendment for a reason. There's no amount of quantity, like slavery had to go. And no, I don't think anyone wants that back. No one wants to over uh, to repeal the 13th Amendment. And we don't just want to make slavery more expensive. We just There's no place for it. And we want it gone. Well, I guess then that's the question of how one uh, just then legislates out of existence certain pollutants is is essentially where this would be leading, which I'm not necessarily against that. I'm just saying that seems like the only uh, that seems to be the path, right? It does seem that way to me, which is why it's so important to like I don't want to impose my will on others. I want to generate popular support for some. If it doesn't make sense to people, then I could try to push something through, and then there'll be resistance. Yeah, I think that that's where one has to do the sales job of persuading people that this is something that is a life worth living, and that it they could still have a lot of the things that they enjoy without the pollutants or certainly with far less pollutants. So that, I think, is the challenge is technically, um, on one hand, creating technologies that are far less polluting uh, or neutral to showing people, hey, this is, this is all right. I, you can actually enjoy life in this, in this manner. You know, that brings us to the Spodek method, which is my leadership technique that, uh, mind if we jump into that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I think I know the answer to the question, the first question, is the environment something that matters to you <laughs> enough to act on it? Yes, I, that is. When you think about nature, if you can think of a quintessential moment for yourself when you're surrounded by nature, what, like, what do you think about? Where, where are you? What's, what does nature mean to you? It's different for everyone. Um, excellent question. I, I think at different times, different feelings, of course, but, uh, I think the peace of it, the, the sense of tranquility, the sense of, um, maybe being kind of like a native, uh, or what we would refer in Western literature as to being kind of that native experience where back to your roots of, um, unencumbered by the stuff that we have in Western society with cars and whatever, cell phones, etc. Can you make it more visceral? Like, picture yourself really out there. What is it? Uh, I mean, are you, are you in a forest? Are you by a beach? Are you... Um... I'm in a forest. Is it a specific forest or like, I mean... Is it something from your childhood or something from that you've actually been there or like scenes from a movie? I'm I'm thinking of a forest up in Northern California where there there was this ring of uh, redwood trees that uh, I guess Native American tribes would go to as kind of a holy circle, spiritual circle of trees. 
what is it? What do you see? Like, it, what are, what's your sensory experience of it? What do you smell and taste and touch? Well, you can just smell the purity of the air, and um, it's it just uh, it's hard to describe. It's this uh, this sense of people having been there before, the ancientness of it, the I can the awe. I guess that would be another part of of the experience of just feeling these amazingly powerful trees that are hundreds of years old, that are hundreds of feet high, that are just incredible, and they've what they've lived through. You're making me think. I I have not been to forests like this. I've I've seen pictures and I've heard people talk about the redwoods and I've heard people talk about how apparently I was reading about Vancouver and there were in British Columbia where there were trees that were taller than the redwoods. But in any case, back to where you were, is it, I mean, are these redwoods? Are these what I'm, what I'm thinking from the pictures? Yeah. These are, these are redwoods and just, you know, I don't know, 20 feet in circumference or more, just gargantuan uh, trees. So uh, I'm getting a picture of that awe. Well, yeah, can you share some more with the emotions? And going back to what you talked about before, I asked about like the specific scenes of of that the awe and the wonder at the. Yeah, I think there's the native. Yeah, it's it's um, it's like uh, all the stuff in my life maybe drops away, and I'm just really present in this, and uh, it it just. I felt like it brings me back to uh, being a human uh, at a at a very visceral level, and without all the stuff that my mind has told me what being a human is in kind of Western society, it just feel um, more connected to uh, living in nature and being in nature. Part of me wants to explore. I'm, I propose tabling this, but the difference between feeling human that you talked about and what society has told you about what's being human, I, I'd like to explore that later because I, I, it resonates with me. Uh, the being, but being back to feeling human and that awe. I want to work on those emotions and propose to think of something you could do to manifest those feelings that you felt among those trees in your regular life. So I invite you to come up with something, to think of something you could do in your day-to-day life. could be long-term, could be short-term. It could be just a one-time thing to manifest those feelings. It won't be exactly the same, but something like that. And with, with a couple of constraints that have come through experience of, it's something that you, to come up with something you're not already doing, something that you do with your own hands, that you do yourself. So it can involve other people, but it has to involve you at least. And something with some physical component so that it's not just passive appreciation of something, but where you act, where you can say afterward, I love things better than I found it in some way. And one thing I'm not saying that a lot of people hear is I'm not saying what's something you can do to help the environment, what's something you can do that like National Geographic tells you to do. It's not about helping the environment. That may be an effect, but it's really to manifest in you these feelings that you've gotten in nature that were profound. And maybe you might not get the depth 
But well, if you if you're game for it, then I'd have you back a second time to ask how it went. Yeah, I'm definitely game for it. I think that's a great exercise, and um, I think it can be really profound, probably to to see where that takes me. Great. So some people have something right off the bat. Like they say, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do something. Some people it takes going back and forth for a while uh, and also in between. Does anything come to mind right away? Yeah, one thing that I've been ta- kind of ruminating on was uh, planting trees and um, something that kind of came to mind as you were talking of something doing with my hands. Have you planted a tree before? I had not. And when I did this, I, I have planted trees since this because I have people do the Spodic method back to me, which led to me planting a tree. Have you planted a tree before? I have planted a tree before. Um, one tree I planted in my parents' backyard uh, probably 35 years, 40 years ago, and it's sprouted to be like a 75-foot high tree or something. It's pretty amazing. Wow. How, how does that feel to see it? It, yeah, it just feels incredible to see the trunk continuing to grow and, uh, you know, maybe it's four or five, six feet around now. It's uh, it's great to, to watch it and feel like I, I had a part in this. So would you be game to, it sounds like planting another tree and then sharing the experience? Yes, absolutely. So let's make it, the next step is to make it a smart goal, which is specific, measurable, like how... How long do you think it would take you before, if we scheduled another conversation, that you could say, all right, I planted it and here's what the experience was like? Uh, probably maybe a couple of weeks, maybe, something like that. Uh, give me a little time. I, I guess the question is where I would plant it. I, I could plant. I was thinking of out in nature someplace, not necessarily so close to my home, but uh, who knows? Yeah, and what kind of tree and... Do you start with a seed or an acorn or do you start with a sapling or? Yeah. I don't know the answers. Right. But these were come to, come to mind for me. The tree I planted was a sapling, so I didn't have to start from scratch. Right. Yeah, I was kind of thinking a sapling would probably be an easier place to start or kind of. Plus you can show, if you wanted to, you could show pictures of it and not just be, here's some dirt. <laughs> Underneath the dirt is a tree, is a seed. Um. So before we hang up, after we record, do you mind if we schedule a sure. second conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And actually, I'll ask you, um, I don't ask everyone this, but I walked you through this process. And so you wouldn't have committed to planting the tree, not likely had I not walked you through it. Uh, are you doing it for me? No, I, I feel like that's something that I want to do. And your your comments encouraged me to go do it and i feel like that's the best we can do for our fellow humans is to give them a place to play and because all of us want to contribute and i feel that uh for myself i wasn't feeling a pathway towards contributing and i was looking around and uh, have found in recent years some pathways to contribute. Yet, of course, there's there's always more that we can do. And um, 
it's really a gift that we give to others when we open up these pathways because they want to give, they want to contribute. So uh, thank you for that. Well, I'll say you're welcome, uh, although you're going to be planting the tree, not me. Uh, but do you see how, to me, why why distinguish between, say, taxes or you know effective accounting, which I, I support if done effectively and, and through democratic means, I view that as extrinsically motivated or extrinsic motivation, which can work. But here's something, and this is a one-time t- small scale thing here, but it's something that would scale. But it's intrinsic motivation and it's a different mode of action, a different mode of influence than, than um, extrinsic, controlling or coercing. And I don't see much... I don't see much of it within anywhere in sustainability of it seems most motivation is look at what's going on in, in Bangladesh and we've got to do something about that. And if someone says, I want to plant a tree, people often, the response is, you've got to scale. You planting trees sounds nice, but we can't get distracted from solving systemic issues. But I think that systemic change begins with personal change and with absent the personal change, you get a lot of talk, but not a lot of enthusiasm. You might get, if I, if some math talk is okay, it might change the y-intercept, but not the slope, or maybe even get the slope going the wrong way. Whereas if the slope, that is people want to do more and want to share with each other what they've done, that's something I don't see people doing. And that's one of my main areas of focus. Yeah, I think that there's a brilliance in actually seeing what you're doing uh, and feeling it and having that visceral experience. And and that's one of the reasons why I was thinking of trees before even having this conversation, but not necessarily in me physically going out and planting them. Sometimes it's like, well, I'll contribute to an organization and they'll plant the trees for me. But I think it's a lot different to actually feel it and have that experience. Um, it's certainly watching my own tree grow in my parents' backyard has been a lot different than maybe seeing a tree somebody else planted grow. Yeah, you're talking about that that feeling, and I predict from experience with lots of people doing this and me doing it, that whatever feeling you expect to have, it will be greater when you actually do it than you would have expected, even taking into account what I just said. Mm-hmm. There's something, it's a difference between reading about music and, and hearing it. You just can't hear it. You can imagine it, but hearing Beethoven's Ninth from a symphony is just, you can't put that into words. Right, right. The beyond words category is something that uh, all of us probably that's one of the things of going back to nature when you were talking about bringing myself back to that place of being in nature is it's an unspeakable um, experience, which we should treat ourselves to. Yeah. And I think that's why Reagan, when he was governor, tried to help the Lake Tahoe and stopped and actively worked to stop highways that would have cut national parks apart, or I forget the exact details, that he was there. He was in the spaces and they meant something to him. And I think that the more that we 
I think most Americans not long ago could simply walk to be among trees without the sound of cars or internal combustion engines or honking or airplanes flying overhead. For most of America's existence, I think that was the case. Now, I would bet that most Americans, maybe virtually all of them, would it would be impossible for them to walk within a day to have an experience like you had, meaning that if if something like that were to go away, that would be some abstract loss to them. Right. Not Maybe not even – it might not even register as a loss compared to if someone said – well, it'll increase the GDP because the trees will be cut down. Yeah, I, I recall reading about the redwood forest back in the 80s before I moved to California and, and thought, well, you know, it seems like certainly you hate to cut down those big trees, but it was all theoretical. It was all analytical uh, rather than when you see those trees, you think, oh, my God, of course you don't want to cut those things down. They're they're incredible. Um yeah, so th this type of conversation, it, it changes from just talking about it. And we'll talk again about after you've planted this new tree, how that experience propagates into, or not, into your thinking and, and actions. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah, so I, okay, let's pick up here next time. Although maybe there's, is there anything we didn't cover this time? that's worth covering or anything I didn't ask about. Well, I think we covered quite a wide range and fascinating conversation. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. It, you know, uh, you're a great thinker and, and doer. And uh, I'm very uh, honored to be here and to be a part of this conversation. Well, I'm honored and flattered at what you said. And I look forward to picking up here where we left off next time. So Matt Matern, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.